1: clients of ARK Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.
0: Welcome to FYI. I'm Simon, one of ARK's genomics analysts focused on diagnostic medicine. This week, I'm going to be speaking with Gabe Ott, who is the co-founder and CEO of a company called Freeno. So Freenome is, without a doubt, one of the most interesting private stage companies that's focused on the earlier detection of cancer, so cancer screening, using liquid biopsy. And before we jump into the podcast, I just want to quickly recap some of our research on cancer screening to help set the stage. So all tumors follow a predictable path from local and treatable to metastatic and lethal providing the rationale for detecting cancer as early on in its life cycle as possible. Metastatic cancer, so late-stage cancer, comprises just 17% of new cases, but measured out at five years will actually result in about 55%, so the majority of cancer-related deaths. If you look at the average survival statistics, the five-year survival statistics, for all different stages of cancer, Localized cancer is about 90% average survival measured out at five years, but that falls to only about 24% for metastatic cancer. So, really, all these statistics kind of speak to the idea that the earlier that we detect cancer, the more likely a patient is to survive that diagnosis. Currently, the tools that we have to detect cancer earlier are about half a century old. Many of them have really severe challenges with sensitivity so their ability to actually detect early stage disease and we think all of this taken together supports the idea that using a molecular approach so a liquid biopsy approach to earlier cancer detection you know when you can look at many different cancers at once could significantly reduce the emergence or what we call the the incidence rate of late stage cancer and improve survivability Freenome is focused on making this a reality, first in colorectal cancer, but moving on to other types of cancer as well, using its multi-omics platform. So really quickly, when we talk about multi-omics, really what we're saying is, instead of just looking at say genomics, which is DNA, or transcriptomics, which is RNA, right? So we're looking at multiple different categories of data at once and adding them together to get a more holistic picture of what's going on inside of the body. So in the context of earlier cancer detection, right, you have a very small tumor that is shedding information, molecular information into the bloodstream, whether that's misformed proteins, fragments of DNA with mutations on them, differences in, in methylation. And so what Freenome is really focused on is incorporating all of these signals together into a larger aggregate signal that can be a better predictor of when and where cancer is growing inside of the body. So with all of that, let's jump in. And so maybe we'll start before we get too much into the weeds on the tech side. Gabe, I'm, I'm interested in learning just a little bit about your background, especially how you got interested in cancer screening in the first place, or, or maybe how that started becoming a priority for you. and maybe you know, generally how that applies to the way that you run Freedom.
2: Sure. I think having an impact on a disease like cancer has been a goal of mine for as long as I can remember. I, I initially, I think, wanted to become a scientist because I wanted to go and tackle these big diseases and come up with solutions for them. And I don't think that's, you know, very different for uh, other scientists as well. I think for me, when cancer screening really came into focus was during grad school when i was looking into sort of aging and age-associated diseases like cancer and how they sort of come about it became very clear to me that while therapeutics for cancer is good and and uh, continues to improve especially with the advent of uh, things like immunotherapies uh, that are out there the difference between sort of treating early disease versus late disease and uh, different outcomes was pretty striking to see and i think for a lot of cancer types not not all but for a lot of the cancer types if you detect it early the chances of survival is over 90% and if you detect it late the chances of survival is less than 15%. so in terms of having the biggest impact on on cancer and cancer patients it occurred to me that it was the need to focus on the early detection how we how do we make sure that we detect cancer early seemed to be the bigger problem that I wanted to solve for. And then it was around that time also that my grandfather, who raised me until I was 10 years old, he was diagnosed with cancer a second time. And the difference between the first and the second time was that uh, the first time he survived it because we were able to detect it relatively early and treat it. And then the second time we detected it, by the time we detected it, it had already metastasized to the spine and and to other uh, parts of the body. So it was no longer really operable and treatable in any way. And he unfortunately passed away from that disease. So it did feel like everything was sort of pointing into that direction of like, we need to solve this problem. And so I dropped out of grad school and started the company with my Mm co-founders.
0: And I'm interested too, right? Like one of the things that really stuck out for us as we were, you know, a few years ago, beginning our work in earnest and learning about the screening space and the underlying tech was that, uh, a lot of the tools behind earlier detection that sh- you know we'll get into with Frenome as far as multi-omics are concerned, were really cost prohibitive for pretty much the entirety of human history up until maybe just a couple years ago. And so while you were in grad school, I, I know it was for kind of a, a technical set of subjects. So where were the seeds being planted in terms of, you know, maybe not specifically multiomics, but saying, okay, well, there's got to be something new, interesting, and different with all the leaps we've made with backend computation, the upfront chemistry, the sequencing cost declines, everything like that. Because it's funny, one of the things we've settled on is the fact that most of the screening protocols that are in place, a lot of those tools are half a century old. Right. And so there's really not been the same amount of innovation on the diagnostic front as there has been on the therapeutic front, despite, to your point, the fact that at the beginning of the diagnostic funnel, you have so many more people ostensibly that can benefit from, you know, versus late stage disease.
2: Of course. Yeah. So as you mentioned, there are a lot of components. Some of them are obvious, right? The sequencing costs coming down. We process a lot of data per patient to do what we do. And so I think that was uh, certainly one of the things that really pushed us to say this is the right time to do this. But I think there were some other observations that when you look at the diagnostic space in the past, that really convinces us that things could be different now as opposed to in the past. Uh, One of them is the nature of multi-omics type of assays. The vast majority of assays in the diagnostic world are very, very simple sometimes even single marker, most of the time single marker, and very few sort of multi-marker types of tests where you're looking at a variety of different signals from the blood. And so uh, there's actually iterations of this, right? Like PSA, uh, which is the prostate-specific antigen, is a marker, is a single protein marker that we have been using for over 20 years to try to detect prostate cancer. And it has its pros and cons. There are other protein markers that tend to be very simple protein markers. So it was only recently that this concept of like, can we actually combine different signatures together across DNA, RNA, and proteins to make an assay that is a single assay? Is that something that is possible? And and I think companies like uh, Foundation Medicine laid the groundwork for this because they were the first ones, especially in the tumor sequencing arena, where they said, we're not going to just do a couple of genes. We're going to do the entire tumor sequence, right? We're going to sequence the whole genome, and then we're going to be able to tell you all the potentially interesting signatures across the, uh, across the genome uh, from that broad assay, right? So this concept of having a broad set of signatures, not just one or two, but thousands of signatures is all of a sudden possible. And the part of that was technology. Part of that was computational and uh, the computational capabilities, as well as the bioinformatic tools um, that we had at our disposal have now matured to a point where you can do you know, some of these activities. But, you know, we're still in the early days for certain things like combining DNA with protein signatures uh, into a single cohesive assay across different analytes is a completely a novel concept. There's actually very few. Bioinformatic tools that actually allow you to work across analytes. It's usually focused on a single analyte. And so we've had to build some tools that enable us to do that. And then not to mention, one of our, you know obviously, a secret sauces that makes our assay capable of doing what it's doing, which is leveraging immune signatures as well as tumor signatures to be able to do detection, which was really an idea that only became more broadly accepted with the advent of things like immunotherapies that were happening on the therapeutic side. Because if you recall, you go back 15, 20 years and you asked oncologists, you know, what do you think about leveraging the immune system to go after your tumor? They would have laughed you out the door. They would have said that's, you know, never going to happen. Immune system is not that specific and things like that. And truth is, is five years ago when we started this journey, Clinicians said the same thing about our technology of like the immune system, you know, it's not specific enough, you can't use it for detection, things along those lines. So it's also the maturity in I think our understanding of certain biologies, combined with the technology improvements on the sequencing side, as well as the software maturity that's really enabling us to do what we do today.
0: So maybe just so I can I can draw a dotted line around when we're talking about multi-omics and, and specificity and some of these technologies. I think most people at this point are, are probably pretty familiar with our research and have, have heard of this, this term before. But maybe just conceptually to draw it up, you know, the way that we think about it, and, and correct me if there's anything you want to add in or or change here, it's it's this idea that At the end of the Human Genome Project in 2003, we had amassed all of this great genomic data on the human genome, and we were starting to learn how it was connected to human disease and to protein structure and things like that. And then as sequencing costs came down, we started to realize, oh, there's a lot of novel information contained within RNA, right? So the transcriptome, and then, you know, to your point on, you know, some of the, uh, these other ones, the epigenome, right? Chemical modifications to the structure of DNA. So that's like methylation. And the interesting thing about cancer detection, especially in, in early, early stages, is you get to this preeminent challenge of, of finding the signal through the noise. And the realization that, that maybe you guys had at the very beginning was that a lot of these signals are stackable. Right. So before they may have looked like a bunch of disparate data points, but you know, you can say, well, we can take the signals and aggregate them, and you actually end up getting something pretty loud, right, if you look at them in the same way. So maybe just talking about that idea in the context of the beginning of, of Freenome, you mentioned you started it with your co founder, you're moving along. This was a, a few years back. So I'd like to learn a little bit more about as you guys left grad school and you took all these ideas and began to get feedback from you know the diagnostic community from clinicians you know you're building this company from the ground what were some of the early lessons that you guys learned maybe ideas that you had that actually didn't work in practice and you had to kind of change things on the move i'm curious about some of those early years and those early lessons that you all learned
2: I think one of the bets from the very beginning is this, you know, signal to noise issue that you're talking about, you know, cancer screening. The challenge of it is, is there's not a lot of signatures in early stage for you to actually glean from the blood. And so our bet was there was no simple solution to cancer screening. Otherwise it would have been solved already. And so we had to go multi-omics, meaning we had to combine Bunch of uh, different signatures that you know sort of stack to uh, be an amplified signature. I think we underappreciated how hard of a proposition that actually was. And what I mean by that is, even if you had all the research done across all those different analytes, there are some really practical challenges of bringing something like that to clinical market. Like for example, most blood collection tubes that you would use do not preserve all of those signatures they are not aimed to preserve all those signatures. So like Streck tubes, for example, were really designed to preserve DNA. And then there are certain preservative tubes that are meant to preserve RNA and proteins and et cetera. We needed to do it all in one tube <laughs> in order for it to be a, a clinical uh, tool that we can, we can actually apply. And so right out of the gates, there was a challenge that we hadn't thought of before of the implications of what it means to be a multiomics company. And that's not even to mention for each one of the analyses that you look at, you now have to do quality control and you have to have all these you know, processes. And when you have that many degrees of freedom, it's a lot higher likelihood that there's going to be a failure somewhere along the path of the processing of the data. But your overall clinical test cannot have a failure rate of like 30% or something like that, right? You want to have it less than 5%. But if each one of your analytes have a, chance, a 5% chance of failure, that's all going to stack,
0: mm-hmm, right?
2: Mm-hmm. And so we needed to hold ourselves to a higher standard for each one of our analytes. So rather than 5 or 10% failure rate overall, we had to basically get each one of our analytes to have less than 1% failure uh, rate. And so these are the real challenges. And like, in order to solve that, we had to come up with novel laboratory processes in some cases, we had to build an assay from the ground up so that it's fundamentally different in chemistry to sort of enable that to happen. I would say those are all the sort of uh, mistakes that we made early on. So certain things are even more subtle than that. So like we had a we had a tube that we were collecting data from and we were uh, generating DNA and protein data and we were getting data for both the DNA and the proteins. However, What we didn't realize is because of the tube and how it treated proteins, the numbers that we were getting for the protein concentrations was actually not reflective of the physiology. It was reflective of the physiology that has gone through a chemical change in the tube that we were reading out. So it it wasn't that it was like a complete failure of the proteins, right? That would be easier to detect. But instead, what we were detecting was like these values that were sort of modified because of the tube that we're using. And so we couldn't essentially do proper research to figure out which are the proteins that are actually relevant for detection.
0: Right. So I think there are all these challenges that start cropping up. And it's it's funny, I wonder, because this was back in what, 2014, 2014. roughly, 2014. Yeah, Yeah. I, I don't exactly know when the investor mindset changed. I mean, obviously, it's still changing. But everything that you're saying is suggestive of something that is, I think, a pretty important paradigm shift within diagnostic medicine, which is essentially that it's no longer commoditized. These very advanced techniques that require bespoke variant calling systems, or I mean, like you said, all the stuff going on at the, at the front end that you have to account for, which, you know, again, propagates through the whole assay. Yeah. It's like we've gone from this state where we can do, you know, gene by gene, test by test, very simplistic stuff. And from the investment point of view, something that I've been pretty interested in is these huge R&D budgets, you know, large public companies just on the diagnostic side, pouring tons of money into R&D. And it's like, what are they spending it on, right? It's a very new sort of thing. And, and generally, it's thought of as a negative because, you know, it hits the bottom line and you have that issue. So yeah. from your point of view, maybe back in 2014 versus now, have you seen a big change in the way that investment? Investors, private and public, are thinking about the importance of R&D for an advanced diagnostic company like yourself? Are they understanding that in some way, shape, or form, this can translate materially into COGS or cost of goods sold reduction or, or new products or things like that? Has that changed or is it still kind of the same?
2: I think it's definitely changing for sure. And we're definitely seeing that there are investors who are very sophisticated biotech investors who tell us as they invest in our company that we're the first diagnostics companies that they've ever invested in, and you know they've traditionally just done therapeutics uh, companies. So there's definitely this shift that's happening that they're recognizing that diagnostics is as technical and as potentially complicated and defensible as sort of companies uh, that's more on the therapeutic side, and as you say, uh, much harder for it to just get commoditized. I think there's also just this recognition that these challenges that you overcome are non-trivial challenges for others to overcome even though it doesn't sound like a lot these little clinical things that we just talked about clinical challenges when you're trying to translate r&d into actual clinical uh, laboratory tests there are some groups that do that really well there are some groups that do not do that really well and that does have implications on the bottom line as far as the test performance goes as well as the costs and so i think they are hungry for these very high technology uh, diagnosis companies that can do all these little unsexy things right that will set them apart from the other companies in a way that has lasting implications.
0: Mm -hmm. And so maybe just to continue as that change continues to take place, I know this year especially has been the year of the liquid biopsy, right? Across every different part of the cancer care continuum, from what you're doing at the front end with the early detection of various cancers to things like one of the ones I'm most excited about is a minimal residual disease. So this idea that when you detect an early stage tumor and you do surgical resection or you begin treatment, you can kind of monitor it as a patient goes through the treatment process. And even out to things like, you know therapy optimization, recurrence monitoring, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of technicality built into that, as you pointed out, that involves a lot of different di- disciplines, You know, chemistry, bioinformatics, and everything in between, even hardware, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering, do, do you think there just has to be some sort of structural change in the investment community? Or do you think that companies that are involved with a lot of deep science and deep tech need to invest resources maybe in educating the investor base or or having a different kind of PR strategy to get people to understand it. Because at, at some point, you have to admit that it's like a serious barrier to capital formation is can we understand what you're doing, how it's defensible, right?
2: Yeah. It's hard to do something new and have it be understood, right? By, I think, investors, uh, no matter which space you're in. I think investors are, at least in my experience, uh, the investors that we have are generally very technically savvy, and they can understand these differences. But I think more broadly, I have run into these issues where, for example, diagnosis companies have performance data that they release, right? But not all performance numbers and not all studies are created equal. And understanding the nuances there is very important. And I would say that I've had to do a fair amount of education there of trying to explain why the different data and the different way of analysis matters, right? Is it pre-diagnosis versus post-diagnosis that you drew the blood in this study? Because that has implications on performance numbers. Is the distribution of patients across racial lines, across gender, across geographies, is that similar to what you would expect to see in your pivotal study and beyond in the the market? Because that has implications on the performance. Did you use cross-validation or was this true holdout with a locked model uh, that you tested to get these performance metrics? Because that has implications on uh, the performance numbers. And so I think this recognition of like, not all performance numbers are created equal, not all studies Mm -hmm. are created equal and being sophisticated enough to be able to differentiate because some numbers companies throw out there may be completely meaningless with respect to being informative of what the future data is going to look like. Whereas right. others, others, I think, have done a really nice job with their earlier study designs in a way that actually reflects the pivotal study so that you can actually take that data to be more informative for what it's going to be in the future studies. So there's like those nuances in the world of diagnostics that I think people are starting to understand, but there's mm-hmm. still a fair amount of education that needs to be done. I don't know how we get there other than we continue to sort of educate the investor base. But also, I think, as pivotal data is read out and some companies' numbers are going to replicate better than others. And then the investor is going to ask more questions about why did this happen? And perhaps that's when we have, you know, better uh, understanding because a proof is in the pudding at some point, right, to get those things out there. So I think it's going to happen gradually. And I think it has to do with The companies that are doing things the right way, making sure that they educate the investors as they go along and making sure that the investors also lean in and realize that there are these nuances uh, in the world of diagnostics that they need to pay attention to.
0: Right, and we'll definitely get to I, I do want to have a discussion about some of these studies that you mentioned. you know, we won't name any specific names, but just being able to at least have a crash course in understanding things like sensitivity and specificity and and how to interpret these clinical readouts, especially as we see more of them. But before we get to that, I agree with you. I think it's definitely going to be kind of a group or a team effort. I mean, I think part of it definitely falls on the back of the companies themselves, but I think increasingly, at least amongst kind of the, the buy-side folks that I work with, I think some of us definitely do take on some of that burden as well with, you know, doing things like this, doing podcasts and getting people to kind of understand or focus on it. And so I agree. It will be gradual and definitely feels like a team effort. But on that same vein, as Freenome began to mature, and maybe you made these team-like connections with others, maybe it's like mentors or folks that were working at other innovative diagnostic companies. I'm if you could maybe just talk a little bit about, you know, to the extent that you're able, some of these mentors that you had or things that you really said, oh, that's a new way of looking at things, maybe that you didn't necessarily have when you were forming the tech backbone of what Freenome is.
2: Yeah, I don't want to uh, name any specific advisor because I obviously haven't asked whether I could share that in the public setting. But there are some people that I definitely rely on that have very different perspectives on what the future of diagnostics should be. And I think that's a, it's a beautiful thing. It helps me actually forge uh, my own path. One example of this is to what extent can diagnostics become more consumer facing as opposed to sort of very much into healthcare system only? I think one of my advisors definitely challenged me on that. And she challenges me to think about like, how do we make sure that these tests, diagnostic tests are sort of as accessible as possible, especially for something like cancer screening. If it's not accessible, it doesn't matter, right? You have 0% sensitivity. And so there's this I think recognition of like, how do we make sure that these tests are reimbursed by anyone who has payer coverage? You know, there's indication of like, how do you make sure that uh, you get into the guidelines? Because a lot of the primary care physicians out there, they're so busy, they don't have the time to read all the latest research. So they're going to rely on the guidelines from uh, groups like the American Cancer Society and the USPSTF to really, you know, figure out which tests are the tests that they should order on behalf of their patients. So I think, Just making sure that we push the envelope on these types of groups and evolve them so that we can get these tests sort of as accessible as possible is something that has been hammered home to me quite a bit. Not coming from, I think, diagnostics traditionally, you can never underestimate what kind of barrier to entry reimbursement is, what kind of barrier to entry the guidelines are. And Mm -hmm. I think that, that was a shocking component to me of just looking historically of how many excellent diagnostic tests maybe got FDA approval, but then they didn't really go anywhere because they didn't have reimbursement and they didn't have a guideline inclusion. And it ended up killing those companies and assay. The typical tech adage of build it and they will come does not exist in diagnostics, especially for, for something like cancer screening, where if you were to proactively seek out cancer screening, it's at best neutral news. Because at best, your default assumption is that you're healthy and cancer-free. And so at best, taking a test like that is neutral news for you. And then the alternative is you know, maybe the worst news you can get in a medical context. And so there's also going to be that kind of psychological component from people who are wanting to take the test or who may not want to take the test because they don't want to know. And so I think the human element here is often forgotten because we spend so much time on technology And making sure that it's good enough to get FDA approved and things like that. Not realizing that money matters and whether people can afford your test matters. Not realizing the psychological components of how you introduce your test matters in terms of the uptake. And so I think a lot of my advisors asked me to really think about those elements and not necessarily so much emphasis on the technology and the science which is my sweet spot because of my background. That's what I like to think about. But I think the challenge has always been, you know, science and technology is great, but if you don't get it to where it can be accessible for everyone, you've done nothing.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and it, it seems like, you know, maybe in a five or 10 year time frame. Let, let's talk about it from that point of view. So we, we continue along some of these cost depreciation. I mean, really benevolent depreciation too with, um, you know, on the, on the COG side it almost seems like within that time frame the diagnostics industry is going to look a lot more like a service industry where having fda approval and a really sensitive and specific test and all the technological hurdles are going to be i mean it's a high bar but it's a prerequisite to an explosive company you know one that really captures super normal market share you've got to be able to consider people doctors patients everybody within that provider network as, you know, your customer and supporting them through that whole process and being careful with things like turnaround time and accessibility, like you pointed out, especially with, you know, increases, secular increases and things like out-of-pocket spend. It seems like that's sort of the way that it's headed over that time frame. Is that kind of roughly how you see things evolving? I think so. I, I think it's weird to
2: think about UI UX in the context of medicine and clinical care, right? But I think we're actually tuned to UI, UX mattering more in the advent of all these digital health companies in the context of COVID, right? where the way they interface with their clinicians has changed and it's more digital now. Now, I don't know how much of that will last. I suspect some aspect of that will last for an extended period of time after COVID. And so it's beginning to sort of force us to think about what is our user interface, right? And user experience of a diagnostic, which is a weird thing to think about, right, and how that sort of impacts whether people take your test or not. I think there's really interesting demographic changes that are happening too, right? All of a sudden, millennials are heading into their late 30s, early 40s, and eventually in the next five to 10 years in their 50s. This is a generation that grew up with technology, that grew up with technologies like Uber and Lyft and, you know, sort of on-demand food ordering, DoorDash, and things along those lines, right? Are they going to expect the same thing out of medicine? And does that matter, right? You want to take a diagnostic test? Well, how do you do it? Are you really going to search for your local uh, doctor, have to schedule an appointment three weeks out, go to that, and then have to answer a whole bunch of questions about your medical background? And then finally, they give you a slip of paper, which then you have to take to another place called LabCorp Quest, and then get your blood drawn. It's interesting to see how that user experience improves over the next 5 to 10 years, as it should. And I think millennials and Gen Z people, as I, I think as they get older, they're going to demand it. Mm-hmm. And I think the companies that really figure out that component of it is going to have a huge impact on
0: healthcare. Mm-hmm. And maybe just switching gears here a little bit, something that I, I really wanted to to talk to you about is... As you know, basically the way we see it within the next year or so, people are going to hear a lot more about multi-cancer screening, single cancer screening, all these different types of screening tests and the different structures. I mean, not just for the consumer side, but investors, too. I think a really easy thing to do is to hear the number of indications that are on a panel and do a really quick TAM calc. Or addressable market calculation and say, you know, look at this gold mine of opportunity. But it's obviously much more nuanced, has to be very carefully thought out. And so, you know, I think one of the things that is, is unique about Freenom is it falls into the category, at least now, of heavily multi-omics, which we've talked about but initially single cancer site, so for colorectal. I know that's not the long-term plan, but maybe just hearing a little bit about the rationale behind that, how people should think about it, some yeah. of the puts and takes of how to curate this this list of cancers. It's obviously not always the more is the merrier, especially in terms of clinical adoption. So yeah. I'm, I'm wondering what you think about that.
2: Yeah, so it's interesting what you said about like the more indications, the bigger the TAM type of thing is a lot of people's understanding, right? And that's certainly true of certain diagnostics. I think it's actually less true for cancer screening because, for example, colorectal cancer, what is your market for uh, early detection of colorectal cancer? Well, your market is basically anyone over the age of 45 is the market, right, who, who could potentially take that test. When you start adding other cancers on top of that, how does your market change? And actually, the short answer is it actually shouldn't, at least not significantly, right? It's not its not like this order of magnitude difference between like a single cancer test versus a multi-cancer test. Now, going back to what we talked about earlier in the conversation, what are the steps that can potentially impact your TAM? And you know, obviously, access is one of those. And I think not having reimbursement for your test is actually one of the huge factors uh, that's going to reduce your TAM, much more so then this conversation between single cancer versus multi-cancer. Now, I think in terms of Franome's decision to sort of focus and do a cancer-by-cancer approach is twofold. First and foremost, we thought a lot about how it impacts patients, the test that that we would create. And there are some cancer types that really fall nicely into this high-specificity screening paradigm, what we call high positive predictive value, as in you don't want to be wrong when you call something positive, right? I would probably categorize things like ovarian cancer and liver cancer into that, into that category. There are other cancer types like colorectal cancer and breast cancer and prostate cancer, where it, I would say, falls into the other category where you want to make sure that you don't miss those cancers. You want to have relatively high sensitivity. Maybe the specificity doesn't need to be as high in those uh, types of applications, because the follow-up steps are not as harmful. Like, for example, the follow-up step for a colorectal cancer detection is a colonoscopy. And so even if you're wrong some of the time, it's probably okay because they're doing the colonoscopy procedure, which they probably should have done in the first place anyway. And so what we found out was maybe there is no one-size-fits-all solution for cancer screening as much as we would love the concept. And if we really want to do right by the patients, at least for some of the cancer indications, we need to be more thoughtful about what is the right balance between sensitivity, specificity, and cost that actually fits into the clinical care paradigm, that actually fits into the physician workflow, and is beneficial for the patients uh, without being harmful. So, so I think right. those are the things that really got us thinking. And what we found was the biggest impact that we can have today and the best impact that we can have today is to focus on colorectal cancer first and foremost cuz it's an indication where the screening test could dramatically change the percentage of people that get screened and at the same time be a huge market for the company uh, that's sort of the the first indication cuz i think there's sort of this lack of appreciation of like access you know as we talked about like today colonoscopy is a very viable way of screening for colorectal cancer. Stool tests are a very viable way of screening for colorectal cancer. However, the majority of people that are told by their doctors to go and do one of those methods don't do it. And so that is an area where, ironically, there are screening tests that are already available, but the majority of the people out there are effectively at 0% sensitivity.
0: Right. The compliance and adherence issue, right. And two, you know, there are two other things that are just sort of flagging for me when you say that is, is first, you know, you, you talked about reimbursement yeah. and the fact that a multi-cancer screen, whether it's truly, you know, something that's dozens of different indications versus a curated set, right regardless, anywhere you fall along that spectrum, it's still a relatively new or, or novel kind of paradigm for, you know, you mentioned the USPSTF or the US Preventive Services Task Force, which is sort of the, the first step in determining national Medicare coverage. So they need to grade that. So ostensibly, this is a faster, more familiar path to getting reimbursement versus something like a multi-cancer screen that may require much more data, you know, more patients in that trial. And also, you don't have to deal with some of the challenges that come with the follow-up, right? Like the natural question that a multi-cancer test begs is, okay, you've got a positive result. Now, where is it? Yeah, right. If you're looking for thirty different things, so and I, we won't get into the details of that right now because of time. But you know that the different options are: do you flex to full-body PET CT, or use a molecular marker to guess at where it is, right, or, or something else that we don't know about, right? So there's there's more convolution in that potentially. Opportunity, but also challenges. So maybe just you know talking about colorectal, I'd like to maybe end on you know your current efforts in running a clinical trial for prenomes kind of first uh, assay and, and developing that out. I definitely wanted to to just talk about that a little bit before we uh, before we wrap up. Yeah,
2: absolutely. So we are uh, running a, an FDA registrational study of up to fourteen thousand subjects called Preempt CRC and. This is where we're doing a direct blinded comparison between our blood test and the results of the colonoscopy, which is the gold standard that we're comparing against. So the participants of the study, they would come in, they would get blood drawn, and then we would schedule uh, them for a colonoscopy and be able to do that procedure as well. The interesting thing, of course, here is in light of COVID, the number of screening colonoscopies have uh, dropped very, very quickly. And so it actually highlights the importance of this alternative blood method for screening now more than ever. So we want to get this out um, as soon as possible. The beauty of how we've structured this uh, trial is anyone in the continental United States and Alaska uh, actually can participate in our trial. And so if you are over 45 years of age, but especially if you're over 60 years of age, and you have not been screened using a colonoscopy in the last nine years. And if you haven't done a stool test, such as a FIT in the last 10 months, you're definitely eligible for this study. And so it's as simple as going to www.preemptcrc.com and just signing up with an email and we can enroll uh, those patients as quickly as possible. We're well on our way, but I think the faster we can get this study done, the faster we can provide this groundbreaking blood tests that should be available to people especially in the midst of a pandemic like covid because just imagine we talked about user uh, UI UX earlier on imagine instead of having to go into the hospital to do your colonoscopy essentially pressing a button and having a phlebotomist come to your house and draw your blood and then that's done right uh, that is how you're going to do the cancer screening in the future it's a really exciting future that you know all of us are looking forward to that's why we're doing the work So uh, if you can help get us there, please, please do go and sign up.
0: Sounds great. Well, Gabe, thanks for for taking the time. We all appreciate being able to speak with you. And yeah, that's, uh, you said www.preampcrc.com. Is that right? Preampcrc.com. Yep. Great. Sounds great. Thanks, Gabe. Thanks, Simon.
2: Appreciate it.